0: Whenever he sees, there's that scene um, where you have the disciples out on the boat and they see Jesus walking on the water toward them. And you know that scene I've seen made fun of a lot on TV. You know, people are like, oh, you yeah, know, walking on water, Jesus. But what that would have meant to the disciples is far deeper than anything we can possibly understand. Because, see, water, deep water, was an uncontrollable place. For much of the Jewish culture, they didn't swim. <laughs> you know, they didn't. That's not something they did. But the, the water was the abyss. It was deep. It symbolized the uncontrollable. It even symbolized for them the powers of evil and death and hell. And to see in that scene that day when Jesus is walking right over the top of all of it, not sinking, but walking across it, would have meant to them right away, Oh my goodness. What we can't control, but we are powerless to walk over, he can. And as we look back on that and we think about who our God is, that he is the God who came and went down into the depths of death and he came out alive. We realize again, is he a God that can be trusted? And when he tells us to step out into the uncontrollable, into the unfamiliar, to trust him, to, to 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 take steps of faith that seem beyond anything we've ever done before. Is he a God that can't be trusted? But right there in that story, it's a resounding yes. And Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that though we would have s- sunken down into the depths, and that though. Our own souls were headed for the depths of hell. You, in your grace and your mercy, reached down, lifted us up, and set us upon the water. Set us above death, above all that we deserved, all because of your mercy, and you called us yours. And so, Lord, as we step into unfamiliar places in our lives and as you call us to places that we've never been before and as we try to take steps of faith or try to share our faith or, or maybe or we're not sure how our finances are going to work out or, 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 God, if I'm really generous, are you going to provide for me? Like, all these sorts of questions, Lord, I pray that you settle us again in the fact that you are good. You are faithful and you are the all powerful God and you are above everything, even the foreboding depths. And may we take a step of faith to trust you. But I pray that you begin just by confirming and resounding to each of our hearts in this room that you are a God who can be trusted. So lead us, Holy Spirit. Lead us, not just individually, but together as a church, corporately. That we might follow you wherever you lead. And trust that it's all really by your spirit anyway. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen, amen, amen. You may have a seat. You may have a seat. Thank you, worship team. Man, what a powerful time. But we're not done. All right, we're not done. And it's, uh, man, I, it's always so interesting to me how fitting uh, some of these songs that uh, Shelby picks for the Sundays, because we don't even talk in depth always about what it is I'm going to be talking on, but man, that song fits perfectly uh, with what I feel like God has for us today. Thank you, JJ. Before I get into it right away, um, I actually, I want to pray together as a church for something. Um. We, uh, as I look over, before we talk about Jesus in Israel, (laughs) I couldn't help but just to feel a burden uh, for that area of the world right now. Um, As they, the violence and the bloodshed, the rockets and all the tension there is greater than it's been in years. I mean, it seems to be escalating Uh, and some people are even predicting all out war um, to break out in that region. Um, This is where Jesus lived. This is where Jesus will return. Um, And I I just feel a burden as a church. Can we just pray together for the peace of that region? Even if it seems impossible to us, I don't care, right? It's not impossible to God. It's not. But I just want to read a passage of Scripture from Micah chapter 4. Just a guide for us as we pray uh, for Israel, for even for the Palestinians, for the Gaza Strip. Like we want to see God do a move of peace in that region. This is Micah chapter 4. But listen to this. This is is a picture that our God isn't just a peacekeeper. He's a peacemaker, right? You know, he establishes justice and peace all within his mercy. That's who he is. Micah chapter 4 verse 3. He says, I shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. This is a prophecy of what's to come. We know this is God's will and His design. Can you join me in prayer for this region? Lord, as I think about the rockets and the violence and the bloodshed i can't help but to think about the families the victims those who with young kids those hiding in bunkers those trying to stay safe and god my heart breaks for them because i cannot imagine just being so out of control in my own home but this is their reality and lord i pray that you stand up and defend the weak the powerless and that you, God, stand right in front of the powers of evil that want to destroy. And you say, Stop. And may you bring peace to that region. Lord, I pray your mercy upon those. We go know, God, that if you if you fully judged as we deserve, no one could stand. But instead, I pray for your mercy upon Israel, upon the Palestinians. And I pray, Father, that for the Palestinians and the Israelites, Lord, that they will come to know Jesus. And that they will come to bow their knee to Jesus. And then we will see a movement of your spirit in that region unlike any other the moment they get desperate for you. God, I don't see within human power uh, solutions, right? I, 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 I struggle to see that myself. I'm not, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but, but I, I'm having a hard time seeing it. But I know, God, that you are able even if I can't see it. And so will you bring peace to that region? For those of our, our friends who live there. For some of us here our coworkers who live there. Lord, may you comfort them. May you show us in our relationship with them how we can just encourage them and let them know they're not alone. But God, we pray for peace. And we know the day you return, Jesus, you will return right there to the Mount of Olives, right in Jerusalem. And you'll establish your eternal throne. And so we pray, may your kingdom come May your will be done the, in Jerusalem, in Israel, as it is in heaven. In Jesus' mighty name, we all said, Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, we're going to dive into Mark chapter 3 this morning. Have you guys enjoyed the Mark series so far? I, I mean, it's been a ton of fun for me. I just love getting back into these stories of Jesus and who he is. And we're going we're gonna to dig into Mark chapter 3 today, like I said. But before I do that, has there ever been a time in your life when you're absolutely certain you were right, but you ended up being wrong? Yeah, me neither, right? Me neither. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. J- July 2018, I was in a meeting here at church, and uh, I get a call from my wife, Shelby. And she said, Kirk... I'm pretty sure our five-year-old daughter, Micah, has broken her leg. My response, broken? Broken. (laughs) Broken? Yeah, Kurt, broken, right? Like, well, okay, okay. what happened? What happened? Well, she jumped off something at the playground here, landed. I don't know. She's yelling. I, I just, I need you to meet me at the ER. And what was my reaction? Well, I would love to tell you that my reaction was just compassion and flexibility. Instead, I heard the word ER, and I immediately saw dollar signs in my mind. And then I started thinking, ten days after that, we had a family beach vacation together. And leg cast and sand don't mix together. So instead, I said, you know, Shelb, like, kids cry. You know, maybe this is just not that big. Maybe we shouldn't make such a big fuss over this. It It sounded like it was just a little jump. I think she's fine. Now, granted, Shelby was there. I was not. Right? She saw it go down. I did not. And despite my attempts to best mansplain away a reality that I did not want to accept, Shelby just said graciously, Kirk, meet me at the ER. All right. right. Okay. All right. Done deal. Discussion over. And sure enough, x-ray confirmed. She was right. I was wrong. Her leg was broken in two places. In two places. And we still had a great, though all, although a little bit more creative, family vacation that year. It was great, but I say all this to ask or to say: sometimes it's way easier to believe a lie than accept the truth. Sometimes, when I'm faced with a reality that messes up my life, I actually want to believe the lie instead of the truth. Anybody else with me on that? And as we dive into, follow Jesus in Mark chapter 3 today, I wondered, if I experienced Jesus in the first century, would I want to believe in him? If I experienced Jesus for myself, would I be prone to believe and accept the reality of who he said he was, or would I simply reject it? By, by Mark chapter 3, the, the, the Jesus movement in this gospel has moved beyond a regional one to a national one. It's a national phenomenon. The, as Jesus heals people, casts out demons, teaches with authority, like the crowds are getting bigger and crazier. There's actually moments now where Jesus and his disciples can't even find time to eat or sleep because... They are constantly swarmed with people always begging for Jesus' attention. Moms in here with young kids who have to retreat to the bathroom to find a little peace and quiet, you're like, I can relate. <laughs> I can relate to how Jesus felt. But with all the hubbub going on around Jesus, some people are willing to accept the reality of who he is, but there are many who do don't. And ironically, it's exactly those people I would think who would believe in Jesus who don't. And as we look at Mark chapter 3 verses 20 to 35 today, we're going to see it's two groups. First, it's Jesus's own biological family. And then it's the God experts, the scribes from Jerusalem who cannot receive or accept the reality of who Jesus is, at least not right away. So think about for us. If you had experienced Jesus in the first century, would you believe? Would you accept the reality of who he was? Why or why not? And why is it that they had a hard time receiving that? What was the hang-up for them? Because truth is, if we accept the reality of who Jesus is, It does mean a lot of change for our lives. Mark chapter 3. Let's dig in together. Verses 20 to 35. And while you turn there, stand up with me while I fix my headset a little bit. Alright, that's better. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. I'll read out loud while you guys follow. Then he, Jesus, went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly. Everybody say truly. Truly. I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. This is Jesus' mother and brother. And they standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus, this is a hard passage today. But I know we can trust you. I know we can trust your word. So will you carry it to our hearts? Will you transform our lives? May this not just be lip service, but may it be of your spirit. And may it move us closer to your heart. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said... Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may have a seat. So let me ask again, if you had experienced Jesus, would you have believed? We just met two groups of people who could not accept the reality of who Jesus was. First, we see Jesus's family who insisted that he was crazy, despite how sane his teaching might have been. Second, we meet the, the scribes or the theological God experts all the way from Jerusalem who insist he's a demon-possessed sorcerer even as they watch the way that he loves people. Why couldn't they see or accept the reality of who Jesus was? Let's well, so look at each group, but family first. When following Jesus becomes too radical for us, it's easier to domesticate him. When following Jesus becomes too radical for us, it's easier to domesticate him. So as Jesus' fame grew, his mother, brothers, sisters were watching from the outside, and they saw the crowds were getting crazy, and he wasn't eating, sleeping well. And I think at this point they were legitimately concerned, as any mom or father would be, for his well-being, for his safety. Will he be trampled by the crowds? They're thinking, Jesus, it's nice that you're a rabbi, but now you're a danger to yourself. This is getting out of hand. It's okay to be devout. It's okay to be religious. But this is radical next level stuff, Jesus. The whole nation is stirred up. And you're making some powerful people angry. So they come insisting. That the crowds and the fame, well, it must just be making him delusional. So they travel from Nazareth to where Jesus is in Capernaum. And they decide they're going to seize him and take him back to Nazareth, his home, for his own good. Honestly, I think that they did this because they loved him. But they just assumed that he was out of his mind. But you know, oftentimes those most familiar with jesus have great difficulty believing who he is no one was more familiar with jesus than his own family jesus was their bro he was he was their guy That he was the guy who who fixed things growing up. He was always there. They knew who he was, but now there's talk that he's God's Messiah, that he's the Lord, that he's going to come to be their Savior. And they're thinking, whoa, 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 this doesn't fit with anything we knew about him. They had cozy memories with Jesus around the Sabbath table. But then in Mark chapter 2, he's saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath. They remember him as a carpenter repairing their table. But now he's repairing human bodies as a creator. This doesn't fit. In fact, none of what was going on now fit the Jesus they remember growing up. But instead of listening for the clarity and the sanity of Jesus' teaching, or looking for the true evidence of God at work in his life, they just concluded he was crazy. Why? Because it was easier to believe that he was crazy than accept that their view had to change. I just felt the Holy Spirit in that. I'm not sure if you all did. But it's easier to believe that Jesus was crazy than accept that their view of him needed to change. And when he no longer fit their familiar view. When he no longer seemed like the Jesus of their past that was cozy and neat. And all of a sudden they're like, we need to shove you back into our familiar place. Because that's who we know you to be. And as I read this story, man, it gives me a sober pause. Because... Like many of you, I, I'm someone who, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up with a lot of talk about Jesus. I, I I consider myself a Christian for a long time. And it makes me wonder how often does my faith just trying to hold on to the Jesus of my past than actually learning to trust him right now? How much am I trying to hang on to who I knew Jesus to be instead of following him right now, today? And if he asked me to step beyond the familiar place to something that felt radical for me, would I be willing to follow him or would I just think, oh, that's just crazy? My father in law, his name is Tim, he's a pastor down in Tennessee. But he hasn't always been a pastor. He, uh, Shelby and I are from East Tennessee. That's where they live. But he actually grew up on the western side of the state, near Memphis. And he grew up in a Christian home. He grew up going to church every Sunday. His older brother even became a foreign missionary to the Philippines and to Korea. Like, Jesus was familiar in his home. And he told me that about 20 years old in college, he knew that God was saying, Tim... I want you to become a pastor. I want you to step into pastoral ministry. But then he saw his older brother. And he saw that his older brother was going into the mission field and was struggling to pay his bills. And Tim said, that's crazy. I'm not not doing that. That was 20 years old. 20 years later, he has a six-figure income. He has two kids, Shelby and her older brother. They're in middle school. He has a beautiful house, political influence in town, like church churchgoer every Sunday, but his marriage is falling apart. He's on the brink of divorce. And God used that moment to get a hold of his heart. And he said at that point, he finally took that radical step of just complete surrender. He left his six-figure income job He moved out of their big old house and found a smaller affordable apartment for his family. And he went to seminary full time for three years in order to become, ultimately step into a role of a pastor. And there are many people who said, you're crazy. We can't believe you're doing this. But for him, it was just about simple obedience. And when I asked him this week if I could share his story with you guys, I asked him too, I said, would you do it all over again? He said, yeah? He says, I just would have done it way earlier. (laughs) (laughs) But see, Jesus is so good and so loving that he would be willing to disrupt his safe, familiar churchianity in order to lead him to follow the true Jesus. Are we willing to follow Jesus even when it goes beyond our familiar, comfortable place. What I've learned is that in my years following Jesus, and many of you who walked with Jesus for a long time can attest to the same, Jesus, we will grow to a place where we are really getting to know Him. And then we will get to a stage and all of a sudden we're like, uh, can I trust Him in this new season? And each season comes with a time where Jesus breaks up our familiar picture of him and teaches us to trust him yet again. Are we willing to take that next step though? But the thing is, if a safe Jesus is what we want, do we realize that a safe Jesus would never save you? Only a God of radical love would give his life to save us. Oh, Only a God of radical love would see the chasm between God's holiness and our sin and take on unfamiliar human flesh and step into our world and take the radical step of giving his life as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. I praise God that he did not play it safe. Don't you? And if this is who our Jesus is, then the most sane thing we can do with our lives is follow him. All right, some of you guys, you're not sure if you're with me yet. That's okay. So, if Jesus' family couldn't follow him right away because they were like, man, this is the, we don't know this guy. That he's beyond, breaking beyond their familiar place. What about the scribes? Looking at them, why couldn't they see the reality that was right in front of them? See, when following Jesus threatens our control, it's easier to push him away. As Jesus' fame grew, his family called him crazy but the scribes went next level. They decided that they were going to launch a smear campaign against Jesus, trying to turn the crowds against him. And so throwing their their weight around as God experts, they started scattering some very serious accusations against Jesus. Number one, saying he's possessed by Beelzebub, which is probably a nickname for Satan. Two, he's colluding with Satan to cast out demons. In other words... Jesus is a possessed sorcerer using black magic. Serious claim, right? Serious claim. But notice, the scribes could not refute that Jesus had power. They saw the people being set free right in front of them. They could not argue with the fact that he had power, so instead they said, ah, we're going to attribute it to evil instead. And while they're doing this smear campaign behind Jesus' back, I love Jesus, he just goes right to their face. He calls them to him, and he's right face to face. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? He says, a kingdom or a house divided against itself, it's not going to stand. And basically, in other words, if Satan is casting out Satan, that's self-defeat. What you're saying makes no sense. It is illogical. But as he's exposing their lack of logic, he's really exposing their hearts. Because when we don't want to give up the throne over our lives, we view Jesus as a threat. I'm going to say that again. When we don't want to give up the throne over our lives, we view Jesus as a threat. But think about this. The scribes, in order to be a scribe, you had to spend years studying the Torah. Years disciplining yourself in order to gain the respect of the status, the power, the wealth of a scribe. So so put yourself in their shoes for a second. Okay, If you had spent years disciplining yourself and studying at the best possible schools, giving your life for the status of a scribe, How might you feel if a young rabbi from the backwoods of Nazareth comes in, stirs things up, and even as a byproduct, challenges your authority? Would you believe? And even if you were intrigued to follow him. Do you realize that after all those years you put in, you would have to leave your position as a teacher, a master, and take the place yet again of a disciple? Alongside peasant fishermen and even a tax collector? Talk about humbling. Would Would we be willing to do that? If I'm honest, I don't know if I would. I struggle with that. Would I be willing to give up all of that? See, status, power, and money, they're not inherently bad things. But how do we respond when Jesus says, hand them to me? Sometimes it's way easier to just push Jesus away and grip our stuff that we feel like we've earned in this world. Is it not? I told you guys this wasn't going to be an easy passage to But please hear this. But Jesus did not come to threaten us, but break the grip of evil over us. After saying Satan cannot cast out Satan, Jesus told the scribes, lean in here, please. He told the scribes, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. This is a parable. Jesus, who's the strong man? Satan. What's his house? The earth. What are, what are his goods? There are men, women, and children who are in bondage to him. But Jesus is announcing here that the stronger man has come and with his arrival the contest between good and evil is not even a contest that the reign of satan and evil in this world has now received an eviction notice and each time jesus cast out a demon from somebody he's proving satan powerless. And that even when Satan sought to do his worst to Jesus, killing him on a Roman cross, when he rose from the grave, he robbed the hell of its authority over all those who Jesus calls mine. Guys, when Jesus asks for our life, it's not a threat. It's liberation. It's liberation. But if we insist... Because we want to hold on to the throne of our own lives. If we insist that what is holy is evil, we will not receive Jesus' invitation for freedom. Jesus begins, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 28. It begins with the word truly. Anytime Jesus says truly, perk up. Alright, this is unique to Jesus. This is something he just He does. Because right after that, He warns, "...all sins will be forgiven the children of man." And whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now many of you may have heard the phrase before, the unforgivable sin. Some of you in here? Possibly? Yeah. Okay. What what does that mean? Well, this verse is where we find that. This is exactly where that idea comes from. And so let me me say, first off, the unforgivable sin is not taking the Lord's name in vain. It's not adultery. It's not sexual perversion. It's not murder. It's not even suicide. That is not what Jesus says the unforgivable sin is. Talk about mercy. What does he say? He says it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? But if we're going to understand that, then we need to get a little context We can't understand that unless we put it in context with the rest of the story. Because see, when Jesus cast out demons from people, he did so by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. But the scribes are attributing what is holy and of God's Spirit to be something evil. Isaiah chapter 5 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe. In other words, because the scribes could not imagine giving up the throne of their own lives. They insisted on calling what was holy evil. And if we insist on calling what is of God evil, guess what? We will never receive Jesus. Jesus doesn't even say here, scribes, you already committed it. You're already subject to eternal condemnation. But he's telling them, he says, warning them, this is the trajectory of your life if you don't turn around. If you don't come back to me. Because see, the thing is, if God's grace is considered a threat instead of a gift, then we will only push it away and never receive it. And Jesus says, come to me. Believe. If you believe and receive the gift of his salvation, you are his. But if you consistently believe that his gift is evil, we will never receive it. And that is why Jesus says it's the unforgivable sin, because it's an attitude that simply can't receive forgiveness. You guys tracking with me on that? So if you're somebody, you're concerned about, have have I committed the unforgivable sin? Let me just say from the get-go, if you're concerned that you've committed it, you probably haven't. And even if you're concerned about it, and you've consistently pushed Jesus away and wanted to maintain the Lordship over your life, there's still time, as long as you are alive, to repent and turn to Him. But Jesus is warning, if we do not turn to Him, we will be eternally separated, eternally condemned for it. And that's why this is a chilling warning that Jesus leaves with those who push him away and refuse to give up the throne over their lives. But, when we embrace who Jesus is, the only logical conclusion is to give him our lives. As Jesus is with the crowds, we see his family again. They're on the outside because they cannot accept the reality of who Jesus is, they remain on the outside, at least for now. And the crowds are telling him, Jesus, they're waiting outside. And Jesus says to them, who are my mother and brothers? Verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. My initial reaction to that is, Jesus, that's a bit harsh, man. Like, this is your blood. This is your family. That's a little bit rude. They just traveled all the way from Nazareth to come find you, and this is how you're going to treat them. But see, Jesus is not dishonoring his family here, nor is he severing ties with them. There are a lot of cults and sects out there who want to try to isolate their followers from their family. That's the opposite of who Jesus is. He says in Mark chapter 7, he rebukes those who neglect their parents. All right? It still matters to him. But Jesus is not disregarding family relationships. But he's saying they cannot be more important than following the will of God. Some of you here, you know firsthand that, that a commitment to Jesus can cause tension, if not division, within our own biological families. We don't try to create the tension or division, but often, sometimes it's the natural byproduct of following him with everything they are. But Jesus is saying, while families are important, there is only one God. And no human relationship can replace the place of God in our lives. But Jesus is also saying that even if our family rejects him, even if your family rejects you for following him, He's saying you still have a family among the body of Christ. And this family is eternal, not just temporary. I want you to look around right now in this room. Look around. Like, because you're, you're going to be seeing each other's whole faces for eternity. All right? <laughs> a whole face for eternity. But even if your family doesn't believe, do not give up praying for them. Because even though Jesus' family could not accept who he was yet, his mother, Mary, would be standing there at the foot of the cross as he gave his life. His brother, James, would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem and become among the first martyrs for following Jesus. Don't stop praying. But I praise Jesus that even though his obedience would mean a radical step, a crazy step toward a cross. And even though it would mean stepping down from his throne in heaven, that he did it all out of love in order to call us to be his family. That he would leave this familiar place of heaven, even his own throne, and in radical obedience to the will of God, he did all of that that we might forever be his. if Jesus is God, the most honest and sane thing we can do is follow him with all our lives. Let me close with this. As some of you know, um, I almost did not become a pastor. About 11 years ago, um, Shelby and I felt this tug, this pull to New England. And it was for ministry and pastoral ministry that God just laid this thing on our hearts that we could not get away from. And so we looked for the best way we can get up here and get to know New England from Tennessee. Um, and so we chose seminary. For about three years, went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary down the road. However, in my final year of seminary, Shelby and I found out we were going to have our first baby. Surprise! And with that announcement, I immediately started thinking about all that it would take to support a family. And then I started comparing that to what a life of ministry might have. You know, ministry, sometimes schedules are unpredictable. The emotional toll is often real. And you definitely don't go into ministry for the money, right? And when you're thinking about all of that and weighing it all together, I started thinking, well, maybe like, like ministry is just a bit too radical. Maybe this call that I felt long ago, maybe I was just young and zealous and I, I just didn't hear God correctly. And then in my own fear, anxiety, desire to grip my own life, I convinced myself that we needed to go back to the familiar place. We needed to go back to Tennessee, where all our family was, and I know I could have contacts, I could get a good paying job there. And for about two months, I convinced myself that we were returning to the familiar place. The heart's deceitful sometimes. We're prone to believe lies. And looking back, the tell signs for me that my heart was deceiving me was one, I didn't invite anybody to pray into it with me. That's a telltale sign. If you're afraid to tell it to anybody else. Number two, my own wife did not feel peace about it. If those traveling with you don't feel peace, perhaps think again. Number three... I got some unsolicited advice from other brothers and sisters in Christ who kept saying, man, I've been watching what God's been doing in your life. I I, I don't know. I think you need to keep pressing forward with the ministry thing. I, I just feel like that's on you. And eventually God used those loving brothers and sisters. Sometimes brothers and sisters, we have to say hard words to each other. But he used them to make me honest with my own heart. And as I got honest, I can still remember the day where Shelby and I looked at each other in the eyes with tears in our eyes. And we realized the real question that we were struggling with is not where we should go, but can I really trust God with my life? And I'm here to say 11 years later, yes, yes, over and over again, yes, you can trust him with your life. And we have watched Him provide for us over and over that even when He leads us beyond the familiar into the darkest valley, we will fear no evil for He is with us. Then even when He asks us to step down from our thrones, He does so because He's way better at being God than we are. And even when He asks us, He leads us to a scary foreign terrain, He is the Almighty God and He's with us. And whenever He asks us to lay something down, do we realize He's always faithful and true? That is who our God is. And if Jesus is God, then it is the most honest and sane thing I can do is follow him with my whole life. Stand. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you've never forsaken me. That you've never left me. And when I look back and think about all that you brought me through and all that you brought Shelby through and all that you brought Trinity through, I can't help but to be in awe. But sometimes, Jesus, when I look forward and I see new situations that I've never faced before, when I see unfamiliar terrain, it's easy for me to start to get afraid again and also have amnesia about how you provided for me in the past. But Lord, I pray that in the moments when we feel scared, The moments we feel afraid, that we'd be willing to stop and recognize that you are the God who left the familiar place in heaven to come for us in love. And that you are the almighty who rose from the grave and conquered sin, death, evil. And if that's who you are, and I know you go with us, then we can go anywhere. We can follow you anywhere. And nothing is radical when it's with you. It's just simple obedience. I may feel radical, but obedience is normal for you, Jesus. So may you empower us. May you show us again who you are. And may you allow us to get honest with our hearts before you now. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. Let's just sing this final song together.